Assalamu alaikum to some of you and peace to the rest of you. It's been a while since we recorded part one of our first episode and now I'm happy to bring you part two of the same episode that talks about the Black Lives Movement and similar movements among Dalits in India. It took me some time to put this together. I hope you'll appreciate the information that I and Shiny Black have put together. If you find it valuable and relevant, please do share with your friends and family. Thanks in advance. So could you tell us something about the Dalit people then? Because uh, you said that they oh, were yeah. the ones that, uh, that, that are the exception as, as not geographically per se, because I know they're in different areas, but you said that as far as uh, the culturally, that was the major exception. So uh, could yeah. you please tell my audience about them? Yeah, yeah, I will. So uh, in the first part of our uh, podcast, we discussed about the BLM and how BLM is actually triggering a lot of similar movements across the world, especially in India. Uh, So the black people of America have actually inspired the black people in India more than more than what what the media will show you more than what the popular narratives will let you know because these these kind of movements don't get the coverage that they 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 need to right so yeah. uh yeah so while the subcontinent is infamous among africans for its anti-blackness you would never know that dalits tried to mimic black movements for their liberation throughout the decades so in 2020, the black people in India, the Dalits in India, are actually finding that a movement similar to BLM within India could give them more hope to gain the kind of rights that all people should have, that, that should be a normal for all people. Like, you don't have rights for certain people and no rights for another set of people in the same country. But this is what the Dalit people are put through. Mm, okay, so the Dalit... Have read, read about this? So are the Dalit people right now aware of the George, George Floyd protest at this point? They were always aware. That is the surprising part. The Dalits always read about black liberation movements. So let me just uh, give you an example of the Dalit Panthers movement. Have you heard that word before, Dalit Panthers? Does it resemble something else? I read about that, but the truth is I didn't have a lot of details in front of me when I read it because I was in college. And at that time, there weren't websites or articles uh, available. Um, Actually, it was somebody that told me about it. But you know what? Now's a great time for us to learn more. So the Dalit Panthers movement was modeled on the Black Panthers movement after the leaders of the Dalit Panthers read about the U.S. Black Panthers in the Time magazine. So the founders mm-hmm. of the DPM, or the Dalit Panthers movement, were Namdeo Dasal, Raja Dhale, J.V. Pawar, and Arun Kamble. They were poets and writers. So these people wrote anti-establishment poetry and short stories and published uh, a magazine called 
withdraw and withdraw means revolt and uh, DPM also used self-defense in response to atrocities against Dalits. They held election boycotts, they demonstrated against the ruling government, and finally even attacked Hindu deities and protested Dalit caste oppression. So it's very similar to the Black Panthers movement. So they hit the they idols that. too. They, so they, they were even uh, knocking down the Hindu idols. Of course, because the Hindu idols, most of them promote the Hindu idea is to is to block out the Dalits, to keep the Dalits out of the educational scenario, out of the political scenario, out of the economic scenario. So they'll always remain as slaves. So their women are always subjected to uh, being the sexual slaves of the high castes. You you'll see that the high castes don't like to touch the the uh, the Dalit people, right? They're known as the untouchables. And untouchable here doesn't mean like the untouchables in the mafia, like the, the, the ones you can't touch. But these are the ones that you're not supposed to touch because they're considered impure or unclean or filthy. That's why they don't you don't touch them. If you touch them, you need to take uh, seven baths. That's what they say. So, uh, but when it comes to the Dalit women, of course, they like to use them as sex slaves. So this is very common in many parts of India, using Dalit women as sex slaves. It's, it's kind of a uh, double standard, right? right? You, don't, you don't give them rights, but you want their women. And, and now, does this go on today even with the law and order and the police? Are they still doing this now? It does. It does. So let me, let me tell you a bit more about the Dalit Panthers movement. Just like the U.S. Black Panthers movement, it died down too. So... I'll just uh, read out a little bit more about the Dalit Panthers. Uh, I have to read because I have to be accurate when it comes to mentioning facts. So the, the organization, the Dalit Panthers, uh, were founded on May 29, 1972 in the Indian state of Maharashtra. In the heyday of the movement, uh, uh, Throughout the 1970s and 1980s, the Dalits were inspired by the Black Panther Party in the U.S. Uh, and uh, a controversy was blazing over one of the founders, the founder Raja, Raja Dale. He, he, wrote a, he wrote an article where he declared a new Independence Day within India. You know that India got its independence on 15th August 1947. Did you know that, right? You already yeah. Know that. Uh -huh. yeah. If you didn't, I'm I'm just reminding you. So it's August fifteenth, nineteen forty-seven, when India got its independence from the British, and Raja Dhale proclaimed a new Independence Day called the Kala Swatantra Din, which translates to Black Independence Day, because obviously the Dalits are black people. So he he called it the Black Independence Day, twenty-five years after the actual Independence Day, because he said, from today, we did not accept any of the caste-based oppression that you are doing, that you've been uh, subjecting us to for so many centuries or, or, or millennia for that matter, because the Dalits have been undergoing this for thousands of years. So did you know about uh, the Kala Sotantre Din? Of course, you would never know about it because it was suppressed, but... I'm just asking you in case you read any literature on the internet about this. 
there's no way we could have been taught about this in any school that I went to. Because to be honest with you, in the U.S., and the people in the chat right now that are in the U.S. can back me up on this. In the U.S., uh, there's no city in which the school system would include this in the standards. And truth be told, if a teacher was to teach something like this, um, they could get in, they could get into trouble and get extra scrutinized for it. Um, we got seven in the chat now, so they could they could they'll back me up. Anybody in the chat? If if any of you ever heard of the uh, Black Independence Day in India, uh, please put a two in the chat. If you if yeah. if your teacher would have gotten in trouble for teaching this to you, put a one in the chat. Yeah. So um, so yeah. Go ahead, sir. So. So to, to, to tell you more about the Black Independence Day in India, so a year before it was announced, there was a government inquiry into the educational, social, and economic conditions of Dalits. And this, this government inquiry is very important because it was headed by a Dalit person by the name of Ele Perumal. Ele Perumal Committee report on Dalit uh, atrocities found that around 11,000 cases of atrocities nationwide against the Dalits. These are the ones that are reported. There are thousands of reports that do not make it. I mean, thousands of crimes that are not reported. Uh, so, so these 11,000 atrocities, they included 1,177 murders in a single year. In a single year, 1,177 oppression-based murders. Dalit women were being raped, stripped, and paraded naked. Dalit men and women were assaulted for using public water sources. They were whipped for wearing good clothes. They were beating for, beaten for wearing slippers. The laborers were intimidated, and the worst human excretions were thrown into the water sources used by the Dalits. These rising atrocities against Dalits made Raja Dhali call for black independence. But given the lack of political power, most Dalits continue to have a very, very degrading, they, they continue to still do degrading jobs like removing human waste, dead animals, or sweeping streets. Dalits comprise anywhere between 18 to, I think it's more, but 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 the report which I says, it said 18% of the Indian population. I think the majority of India, because they don't want to do a caste-based, uh, that, that's a funny part, Black Mind, that they don't want to do a caste-based census of India. The government of India, which is run by the upper castes, are are strongly opposed to carrying out a caste-based census, which would actually give the numbers of the Dalits, which I think is somewhere between 50 to 60% of the total population. We are made to think that we are a minority within India. The Dalit people are, 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 are taught to think that they're only 18%. But wherever you look, you see a Dalit. Wherever you look, wherever you go in India, you see a Dalit. But the Brahmins are like 5 to 3%. The people, people who run the country are like 3 to 5% of the population. And, and Dalits, who should ideally in my, my, my imagination represent 50 to 60% of the population, they're being told 
that they're 18% of the population and they face ongoing segregation, just like the segregation in, in black, in the blacks faced in the 60s and 70s, we faced segregation in schools, restaurants, there's police, systemic police violence, sexual violence, and even lack of access to drinking water. So going back to the DPM movement and how it died. So in 1973, DPM published a manifesto that integrated Marxist capitalist exploitation with Buddhism, identifying Dalit enemies as landlords, capitalists, moneylenders, and government controlled by ruling castes. They also expanded the term Dalits to include other oppressed people such as the low scheduled castes, neo-Buddhists, landless and poor peasants, and exploited women. The notoriety of DPMs, poems, short stories, and street protests led to the rapid growth over 30 loosely organized groups of DPM in Mumbai. That's just one city. And in 1974, the DPM leaders, Dasal and Dale, disagreed about having a Marxism-Buddhism ideology versus a strictly Buddhist ideology. Outside pressures on DPM included intense police surveillance and the government of India declared a state of emergency from 1975 to 1977. So if you didn't know what the state of emergency was, it is a special state of political limbo where elections are suspended and civil liberties are curbed. So going back on March 7, 1977, Dasal and Pawar, two of the founders of the DPM, announced its dissolution as a result of infighting and political repression. As with all movements for the disadvantaged people, this too came to an end. So why do you think, Chinese Black, is that whenever a movement is started by the oppressed and disadvantaged, we always end up hijacking our own movements to the point where it's dissolved. I don't see this happening to the oppressors. When the oppressors are organized, they're organized. They never get dissolved. But when we start a movement to counter oppression, we always end up infighting and then finally dissolving our own movement. You know, man, it's funny you ask me that because I've always been telling my own people that we're not the only... See, African-Americans tend to think that we're the only people that ever start bickering with each other and can't agree on stuff. This is what we think about ourselves. And I've been telling uh, African-Americans uh, and, and even other people, uh, other people of African descent in other countries that it's not just black folks. It's not just folks of African descent um, in Africa and the, and, and the United States that, that get to fighting with each other. Um, apparently, this is going on in India, too, from what you told me. And so we have this idea that everybody from India is very united, that, that all people from India are united with each other and they don't have any kind of uh, rifts between them. This is a mistake uh, that we oftentimes make. But when it comes to hijacking the movements, the thing is we're not really the ones doing it. You know, people that, are, that need liberation don't have the ability to hijack it themselves. If we can hijack somebody else's movement, then we're not the ones that are in need of the liberation. It takes you got to have resources and, and, and less restrictions to be able to take someone else's movement and hijack it for yourself. So if you say hijack the movement, that's something somebody else would have to do. But if 
if you mean to dissolve it or something, then yeah, you know, oppressed people have to fight over bones because the oppressors already stole the meat. And I guess it can lead to that kind of squabbling. Um, I mean, you said they were arguing over whether they were going to mix um, Marxism and Buddhism. And uh, right now, uh, to be honest with you, we're in an argument over um, uh, we're in an argument over how much you can compare homosexuality to blackness in the United States. Um, so take, for instance, the Black Lives Matter. There's the slogan and then there's the organization. So when it became a slogan, a lot of us didn't know that the organization with the same name was set up to promote gay and lesbian advancements. And this is on their mission statement, but a lot of us just weren't aware. Uh, and now they're doing it at the expense of the black movement. And I'm saying that because what I found out was that, that yesterday on Facebook, um, two people that don't know each other, I know them and I know they don't know each other. Two people that don't know each other put out um, a status that said black trans lives matter. Now they did this on the same day. So this means that somebody's giving instructions. You understand what I mean? Yeah. yeah All yeah. right. So they're giving these instructions. And so what's going on is that um, some of the, the some of the homosexual men and women that are black are blaming the wider black community for not sticking up for them and for transgender black people who get murdered. Uh, but the thing is, most of us aren't aware of this being a pattern to begin with that they're targeted or anything. I mean, we're not being negligent. We just really don't hear anything about this kind of pattern. I can't even prove that it is a pattern, to be honest with you. But we already told the white masses that we would not accept them using black-on-black crime as an excuse for police to murder us under the same conditions in which uh, they'll take a white guy in alive and he just committed a mass shooting. So because of this, we can't use a pattern that we aren't sure even exists or not to detract from the issue that we know does exist. But that's what they're that's the, exactly what they're telling us to do. And so um, they're trying to steal some of that momentum to put behind an agenda that was meant to reduce our population and emasculate the men. And the other instance is this. See, there's COINTELPRO in the United States, and that was actually an FBI operation that was a conspiracy theory for years. And then it became declassified and it was proven to be a reality. They actually they actually did it. But it was exposed a long time ago. They declassified it in the 1990s, but it was exposed during the Vietnam War when a bunch of white college students were protesting the war in Chicago and they stormed the FBI field office. The FBI agents decided to flee because they weren't going to shoot up a bunch of white kids, but they left classified documents open on the desk. And that's how it got exposed. Um, so what I'm saying is that apparently the same playbook is happening around the world where these guys, they got into a debate and, and they bickered about an ideology and black folks in the States go through something similar where um, uh, somebody will will forge letters and get them to start arguing and bickering over things so that the movements can't stay together. COINTELPRO worked against the Black Panther Party and apparently something like this worked in India against the uh, Dalit Panther movement. That's what it seems like. Yeah. I hope that Spike answers the question. already make a movie. Didn't Spike Lee already make a movie about this this uh, expose, the 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 FBI declassification of that in uh, of that operation? I'm not sure if he made a movie about that one or not. I have to look up a list because he's made he's made a number of films, and um, sometimes sometimes a movie comes out and I find out later that he was one of many directors. But um, he did do he I know he touched on it in the Malcolm X movie. 
Um, I don't remember if he was involved in the movie Panther or not. Um, I can't remember who the director was, but they do talk about, uh, they do touch on um, uh, federal government and local government's covert involvements in these movements. They, they don't just leave it off, and uh, it, it's a touched-on subject. Um, and he may not have, I'm sure he's not the only, if he did it, he's not the only director that, that touched on that. Yeah, that that's that, that's how they do things, right? They they bring our own kind to come and uh, hijack our own movements. Like now, uh, I don't understand why why the 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 black homosexuals and the black uh, sexual minorities have to become a subset and challenge the wider BLM movement. It doesn't make any sense. Divide and conquer, right? That's how they do it. And 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 we're gullible enough to fall for it. That's the funniest part. Well, that's because um, as black folks, we don't generally put race first and we've, we haven't really had to do so. I mean, like you said, in Southern India, you speak four languages. That means that there's diversity just in the southern half of your country alone. And I know Sri Lanka next door, even though it's another country, um, I know that the genetic stock is very similar, but they speak, um, I think Sinhalese is one language and I don't remember what the name of the other one is. Um, and so... What it is, is that we as black folks, we look at other races and we see a different kind of person. Other races look at us and then they realize that they're one, that, that they're a race. They become conscious of race when they look at us. We don't necessarily do that. So uh, we're used to our own diversity. So we're used to human diversity. Other people not are not necessarily that way. I mean, every time someone is lighter than us and they look at us um, and, they, and they first see us, they seem to be surprised, like they never came from us in the first place. So, um, I mean, as you said, you mentioned, you actually answered this, when you said that the Aryans went in, whether they settled or conquered, when they went into the uh, subcontinent, the it was mostly Aryan men that were moving into the subcontinent and they were marrying Dravidian women. And they realized that the kids were not looking like the dads. They were looking like a, a mix of the mom and the dad, but they, they the kids were not recognizable as Aryans anymore. So if the kids had been taken back to that area region um, at that point, then their own grandparents would not have recognized them. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. And so they had to come up with this caste system to try to freeze the mixing where it, 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 they try to freeze it beyond uh, uh, progressing any yeah. further. So yeah, that, that whatever areas were. I'm sorry, go ahead. Yep. No, no, no. That is a very logical explanation. Yes, go ahead. Well, that's that's really all it is. It's just at the end of the day, people, for whatever reason, they're afraid of disappearing. We're not even thinking about race until someone mentions it, at least historically speaking. We have to be forced to think about it, to think about it. Other people look at us and they start thinking about it. And uh, so let alone when they realize that they still can't keep their hands off of our women or that women can't keep their hands off of our men. It, then that's when they really start thinking about it because they realize they're going to vanish. Um and so uh, that might very well be what it is. It's just they have this fear of vanishing. And um, maybe that's that may be the reason why they seem to be divided. But I'll let you in on the secret, too. And that is that these other groups of people are not that united. They're just united when black folks walk in. Yep. That's all that is. They're not yep. really united. Yep. And so, exactly. you know, if you, these Indo-Aryans in the north, if they are the ones that have the uh, the colorism issue, and, and it's only their elites that really, that really, really have it uh, as part of their religion. The truth be told, see, when you walk in a room as a Southerner, 
um, yeah, they may, um, that, that's when they may seem to be all together. But if you, if you're not in the room and you leave a bug in the room, that's when you'll find out what their divisions are. They have them. We, they just don't let us know so that we can't exploit it. Whereas in our cases, we're used to diversity. So we're not trying to hide our divisions from them. We'll openly say, well, oh yeah, I don't agree with him about this. Even if we like someone, we, we still don't mind telling someone of another background that we disagree with so and so of our same background. And consequently, they, you know, what we will tell them as a regular mundane fact, they will not tell us and they will use when we tell them in order to, uh, to divide because if they keep us busy with each other, then of course, um, you know, of course there'll always be some numbers of them, not only in existence, but also having more resources. And so I hope I answered the question. Yeah. That's what they did. That's what they did to the Dalits, right? So the Dalits in India are divided among scheduled castes and scheduled tribes. They don't call them entirely as Dalits. They've been divided into several tribes and castes so that they'll never be united, right? These, they'll always be bickering amongst these tribes and, and castes. So they, they've ensured the division within the massive division. Like They already created a big division called the Dalits, and then they created subdivisions so that they'll never unite. But do you think an economic, uh, fr- uh, you know, if, if economic freedom and political representation can actually help disadvantaged communities come out of the systemic cycle of oppression and fear. I wish, man. Um, and I want to hear your thoughts after. after. I'm going to hear your own opinion on the same question, but I, I wish that it was really that simple. But see, it depends on how you get it because it's not so bad when you move up on your own and you just kind of grow an economy. But you have to keep this in mind. And, and I'm going to tell you, because even though your situation is, is several thousands of years old and ours is about four and a, maybe 450 years old, um, 400 years old in, in North America, maybe maybe 500 years old um, in, in, in the Americas as a whole, um, our situation is like this. When did um, slavery end? When did slavery end? Well, see, it goes beyond slavery, but in the United States, it ended in 1865, and in Brazil, it ended in 1888. Brazil was the last country to abolish slavery in the Americas. Um, but, but, but it went for four, went on for 400 years, right? Uh, well, j- just chattel slavery, not necessarily, just chattel slavery, um, that started, let's see, in Africa itself, it started before they went to the Americas, but it was only the Portuguese that were involved in it. Um, and they were taking people pretty much back into Portugal and some of the islands off the coast of Africa that weren't inhabited, like, um, like take, for instance, uh, Rio Munia Island and Cape Verde, Sao Tome. But for the most part, um, as far as in the Americas, um, I think it started, let's see, by 1522, they had already started with, with African slavery. They started enslaving the original Americans from the time that they landed, from the I mean, Columbus's uh, second voyage, they were already, when he got back uh, to the Americas the second time, they were already enslaving the Indians looking for gold. Um, and that was, uh, so that would have been, they started in 1492, really, um, started enslaving the Tainos. And they kept on doing it until 1865 and 1888 in the U.S. and in Brazil. Um, Mexico got rid of its slavery in 1828. Mm-hmm. And, um, I'm not sure about every other country, but um, 
the thing I'm, but the thing is this, you're dealing with a three, maybe a 3,000 year old system of oppression over there where, where you are. And we're dealing with a we, system of- We still of, have slavery. It's just not written paper. It's just not, you don't have slave markets here, just that people are born into the caste and they're automatically categorized as slaves. They're already slaves when they're born. You don't need to have a market for them. You just come and tell them, do all this work. Why? Because you're born into this caste. That's why. That's the only answer you'll get. So it's not legal slavery, it, it, but it's de facto slavery, you mean? It's de facto, yes. It's part of society. Nobody challenges it. You can't challenge it in court. You can't challenge it through police. The cop, the cops themselves, they're from the upper castes. These, these the, the Dalits, they're, they're not intelligent enough to educate themselves and get into the police force. They don't get into the, to, into the military. They don't get into government services, even though there's a lot of reservation. Have you heard of reservation? It's something called like you could you could easily get into jobs in the government sector. You could easily get into into educational institutions. But they've created a systemic oppression within all these institutions that that the Dalit people can never get in. So legally, even if there's a space reserved for them, they will be harassed out of the position. Is that what you mean? Yeah, they will be. Um, there, are okay, people, right. there are people committing suicide. There are kids who, who, who end their lives after getting into universities and then becoming a part of the systemic uh, abuse. I, I could give you links about it. We could talk about that in the next show. Wow. Um, I, I guess I better take a... I might have to take an antidepressant beforehand. I'll see if I can get a doctor to prescribe one uh, for that before we start that show. I'm joking about the antidepressant, but I'm sure that that's going to be a depressing one, but we may have to cover it. Um, there's no reason not to really, because uh, you do have, I mean, legally speaking, you have affirmative action in the United States where um, they, as long as there are applicants for the position, they've got to um, give, uh, they have to give some minority applicants a shot. And what they do though is, and that's another story, but what they do is, They'll say, okay, well, we're going to look specifically, if we're going to take someone black, it's going to be a lady, not a man, because then we can fill two two quotas with one body and for one salary. But then also, of course, they just don't want a bunch of heterosexual black men running around with salaries. But it seems like what's going on in that case is, is a bit more entrenched. And I'm going to ask your question. Uh, I mean, I'm going to answer your question because of uh, what you said about the economic freedom and political representation. If what you're dealing with is, is actual, if, you, if what you all are dealing with is a white mindset over there, like what we're dealing with, then even if you were to start your economic freedom, it's more important to have weapons first and then an economy. You need both, but it would be more important to have the weapons first because we went that route in the States. Um, we went the economic route. When slavery ended, we started to build our own communities. And in New York City, even before slavery was over, we had uh, one called Seneca Village. Seneca Village got bulldozed. It's now Central Park in Manhattan. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was not, that, that, that was probably one case. But after slavery, when we built up other communities, um, they got burned down by force. And this happened over 250 times in the South alone. I can't even remember all the cases. Um, Rosewood, Florida is famous. Greenville, Oklahoma, right next to Tulsa is famous. Um, I think uh, Wilmington, North Carolina, if I'm not mistaken, was another famous one. 
There was one in uh, next to Opelousas, Louisiana. I forgot the name of it, but it was a black where settlement. Where was Black Black Wall Street? Where was that? That was Greenville, Oklahoma, right next to Tulsa. Um, that's the most famous one because that was the first time a city in the, in the world, the first time a city got bombed from the air. Um, that was Greenville, Oklahoma. The uh, government even, called even, in. Even before the the Hiroshima and Nagasaki? Yeah, yeah, even before that. Yeah, that city got bombed from the air. The bomb was not an atomic bomb, fortunately, but it, it was still bombed from the air. Um, and so um, at that point, it was pretty much crude. You, They had to have uh, someone to fly over it and then light a fuse and just you know, dump it off the side and drop it onto the city. But, um, but that was the first time that it happened. And it started simply because uh, the, this town was doing okay. They were, they, they were doing financially well. And Tulsa next door was, it was, I guess, normal as far as white towns go. But one day a black man bumped into a white lady in the elevator and um, that just set off a riot. And would, and the reason they, they only needed that excuse because they were already angry that black folks and black Wall Street were doing well. They used to take vacations to Paris um, from Tulsa. Oh, where, where was this? When was this? I forgot the exact decade. Um, Yeah, I can't remember the exact decade. It was between the, it, it was either the 20s, 30s, or 40s. Um, okay, wow. But I, I, it, it shouldn't be in the 40s, though. But yeah, that was, um, wow. that was the famous one. The most, it wasn't the only one, but that was the most famous. And the second most famous is Rosewood, Florida. And that one got burned down because of the same thing. A white woman said that a man, a black man beat her. Um, and so they tore that town down. Um, And so what I'm saying is that if the Dalit are going to develop their own economies, and I noticed something about the jobs that you mentioned, um, that every job you mentioned was not only a rough job, but it was also, it's also a physically dirty job. Yeah. I noticed that where you have a high chance of getting infected if you have any open wounds on your body, for yeah. instance. Yes. So that's what they want you, us to, they want us to die from this kind of, The, these, the professions themselves. Mm-hmm. Okay. In that case, then, understand, when y'all do start going into jobs that are cleaner, um, I'm not saying don't try to do it. I'm just saying that one of the first things you all will have to have is weapons. Um, because if if not, if, if there's a community of these people that are in this, these castes that nobody else can respect, uh, then when y'all start to develop, just keep in mind that they're, they're going to come with the weapons and they're going to start burning stuff down. Of course, there will be riots and stuff. But the thing is, in India, uh, gun ownership isn't legal, right? You could have a gun if you have a, a, a valid reason. You need to get a court order showing that you're, you're, you have a bona fide reason to keep a gun. So only after you get the permission from the relevant authorities can you buy a gun. And even if you buy a gun, you need to account for the number of bullets that you buy for your gun. Like if you have a few bullets missing, you'll be called to account. Because every few, every few days, I don't know exactly how many days, but every few days, the, the, the uh, address where you're registered to, you you're, you're linked to a police station. And there you have to take your gun and your, your uh, ammunition uh, and get them counted and sorted. Like, like you need to register it. Like I've got a gun and seven bullets uh, or eight bullets or whatever. 
And if, if there are a few missing bullets, then you have to answer for it. You understand? Mm -hmm. so, okay. So you can't buy them off the off the counter like in the U.S. You can't just walk into a, sh a, sh a, a, a shop and then buy an AR-15, which I would I would have loved to own, but but you can't do that in in India because if you start doing that, uh, I I think there will be a couple of million deaths every month. <laughs> well, there could be. I mean, I'm sure you already have a crowded situation, so even a low crime rate, still a lot of people. But yeah. um, when I say the weapons, it, it's, it's not only guns I'm, I'm referring to. Um, okay. It's not just that. I just mean anything. Like when they go on riots, what weapons do they use? You got to have the same they, ones then. <laughs> they use swords and sticks and pitchforks like in the medieval times. That's what they use. But they, they're very organized. They use Molotov cocktails as well uh, and uh, burning tires, uh Patrol bombs, they, they use whatever they can find. So uh, what I'm trying to tell you is uh, me, myself, I started learning the oppressor's martial art that is Krav Maga. Krav Maga is, I, I think you know already, but I'm just going to tell it if somebody doesn't know, is, is the Israeli martial art. So I started learning the Israeli martial art. So when an Israeli or an Israeli trained uh, uh, enemy is going to come at you, you need to know exactly what they're going to do next, right? So I started practicing the martial art myself. So that's that's where you start. You start learning martial arts, you start tra training your kids. You don't, you don't train them up to be, uh, what do you call it, pacifists. You, you tell them you be pacifist with those who want peace, with those who want to to obstruct your freedom, to obstruct your rights. You don't you don't, you don't have to act as a pacifist, though we're ideally asked to do so in an oppressive society. It's never, ever going to bring you results. As the Prophet ﷺ said, always negotiate from a position of power. Never negotiate with the enemy when you're weak with them because they're going to take away your rights. It's only normal. So when you're in an equal position or near a position that, that you're already more powerful than them, then they give you the terms that you want. And as Muslims, we are sure that we'll never oppress another uh, uh, community. Like, like they would like to oppress us. We would never do it to them. That, that's, that's the quality that, that only Muslims have. Most of the time, there'll be, there are going to be a few other people, but in mass, we're the ones that are, that are generally afraid to commit oppression to somebody else because we expect it to happen to us if we do it. But nonetheless, um, um, we're going to have to be careful to defend anything that we do build, and um, whatever weapons that the whatever rep weapons rioters have, we would have to be sure to have those weapons as well. Now, the thing is this: if if Dalits are going to build something of their own and try to set up another economy, um, the first thing that they would need would be shelter and weapons. Those would be the first things. Um, and it's better that the people around don't necessarily know exactly which weapons they have, because um, the first time that people come and riot, and that's going to happen at some point, I just don't know when, but the first time people come and riot, you have to be able to take them by surprise. So, um, in other words, you, you don't just need uh, to have the pitchforks and the weapons that they have. But if you know Krav Maga, you would have to make sure that there are enough men who know Krav Maga as well. 
so that when rioters come in, you can disarm them um, and and stick them with their own pitchforks and things like that. Um, yeah. But uh, I don't also, want to also owning also owning these kind of country country weapons as or these traditional weapons is is actually a crime in India. You can't keep them in your homes, right? So what what I would advise is that whenever there's a street full of Dalits, at least start a, uh, a, a, a trading center for martial arts where you could keep all these weapons and tell the cops it's just for training. It's just for practice, not for actually using it on someone. This would be the mm-hmm. right way to do it. Okay, fair enough. And, and you especially got to teach them how to, uh, to, to teach the disarming techniques as well. And I mean, yeah, you know how to beat that system there. You understand it better than uh, better than we do. I, I just know that you have to prepare for that kind of mentality, that riot mentality. Um, and so now what do you think? Uh, do you think that uh, that uh, economic freedom and political representation is going to make a big difference? Uh, like just like blacks and uh, Dalits. I think we're, we're, we're both in the same situation, right? It's like a systemic cycle that you can't get out of. So it, you, you, you just can't get out of, uh, uh, see, let me tell you, let me put it this way. I'm trying to make it as simple as possible. What I believe is that you don't need to be highly educated to be successful in business. You just need a good mentor to leapfrog through all the all the stages in business. So the business starts up, you start making some revenue, then you expand, you do linear integration, you do vertical integration. So what I mean with integration is like, do you, do you kind of get it when, it, when it? when I talk about integration in business terms, do you understand it or do I have to explain that as well? What do you I think? Have a vague, I have a vague understanding. Um, I don't have the details you do, but I've got a okay, okay, okay. So, for example, if you, if you're talking about linear or horizontal integration, it's it works like this: you start off as a retailer of a certain product, then you move up and become a a, a wholesaler, and then you become a master distributor, and you become a countrywide distributor. This is how you do horizontal integration. So. Vertical integration would be like expanding your product range. So if you're doing A and product A is used along with product B, then you integrate product B into your supply chain and you grow. So these integrations only come when you're mentored, right? Even educated people don't know how to do business. So business is something that is blessed by Allah himself. So I don't think that business actually needs a lot of intelligence like it's made out to be. Like they say, Harvard graduates make the best businessmen. I don't know. They have this kind of saying, Stanford, Han, Harvard, all these people produce the best economy. They produce economists. They produce workers. They don't produce business leaders. Look at Jeff Bezos. He didn't go to these universities. Look at uh, Bill Gates. He didn't go to any of these universities. Look at Warren Buffet. He didn't go to any of these universities. But now they're actually taking classes at these universities. They do, they do, they do visiting seminars at these universities. They're not educated. They're dropouts. They worked out from their garages. They couldn't afford to own a business, but still they kept at it and became successful. This is what I'm saying: that it is possible to achieve economic 
success, but you need a mentor. You need somebody to guide you. You need unified support from the community. What black people lack, and the same thing that Dalits here lack as well, and Muslims in general lack, is that when a Muslim starts a business, you're supposed to give discounts to all the Muslims, just like blacks. Like if a black person is selling a product for a high price, for example, the other black people think that, oh, why is it so expensive with you? I'll go get it from the white guy for $10 less. Give that $10 to your brother. Let him grow. Let him expand his business. The white people already have everybody else's business. Why would you want to give him yours as well? So economic sense has to be taught at the home. And there has to be a mentorship program to teach people how to do business. This is the only way to come out of the cycle. So uh, what I'm trying to say is, even if you're underprivileged, disadvantaged, uneducated, you can still do business. Most of the successful businessmen are dropouts, are failures in life. Whenever they try to do other stuff, they failed. You look at Jack Ma, you look at Elon Musk, they all had humble beginnings. They're not super intelligent. They're not super uh, educated. Maybe you'll find a few of them have gone to a university and actually got a bachelor's or a master's degree. The people that Stanford, Harvard, and the top universities in India even produce are workers. They have worker mentalities. They'll work for you. Even if you're uneducated, you could hire a CEO or a CFO who's from Stanford, who's from Harvard, or who's from the top universities in India. This is how you do business. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Well, do you think that uh, you will be doing more shows about uh, economic freedom and uh, maybe, maybe, maybe or maybe not political representation, but uh, do you think you'll be doing more shows about economic freedom for uh, Dalit people? Uh, Dalit and black people. Why not? Why not for my black brothers and sisters? I would love to help them out. Uh, yes, I am qualified to uh, talk about economics because I've been in, in business for a very long time, for at least 20 years now. So I could help people set up businesses, set up supply chains, uh, understand uh, the goals and aspects of business marketing, uh, how to close a sale. I could do all this for them. So I, I could speak more about uh, economic uh, uh, success, but political representation is an entirely different ballgame. I don't know anything about politics. So we need to find someone qualified enough to teach our people how to move politically. But I would have the resources to teach people more about how they can uh, achieve economic success so that, you know, they would they would have a different level, a, 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 a more powerful position to bargain for their rights in society. I hope you listened to the entire podcast and that you appreciate the information we shared. I'd like to talk more in coming episodes about economically empowering marginalized groups. So please keep tuning back in. That's it for today. And ma'asalaam.